Welcome to the Burning Ambulance Podcast. I'm Phil Freeman, and in this episode, I'll be talking to guitarist Brandon Ross. As you know, if you've been listening to the show this season, we have a single subject that we're exploring across 10 episodes, and that subject is fusion. Fusion means much more, I think, than just the music that most people think of when they hear that word. I'm not talking exclusively about the big-name bands from the 1970s, the Mahavishnu Orchestra, Return to Forever, Weather Report. Those groups, and the Miles Davis bands from 1969 to 1975, and many other less immediately recognizable acts, all did the classic fusion thing, playing extremely complex music that blurred the lines between progressive rock and jazz. And we talked about those acts and that music in the second and third episodes this season when I interviewed drummer Lenny White and trumpeter Randy Brecker, both of whom were around then and were actively participating in making that music. If you think of fusion as a mindset, though, rather than a style, the discussion gets a lot more interesting. And that's really how I prefer to think about it. It's not just a specific, narrow slice of music. It's a way of approaching any kind of music you make. KRS-One said once, rapping is something you do, hip-hop is something you live. And that's kind of close to what I'm talking about here, conceptually speaking. Fusion can be a style of music, or it can be a way you approach the making of music. And the people who fall into the latter category are the ones that I find to be the most interesting, and the ones who are more likely to have careers where almost every record they play on is at least worth hearing, worth giving a chance. You may not like all of it, but they're creative enough that they've earned the benefit of the doubt. Brandon Ross is absolutely one of those guys. He's been on a long and wide-ranging artistic journey over the course of the last 40-some years. His first recording was on an Archie Shep album from 1975, There's a Trumpet in My Soul. He worked with violinist Leroy Jenkins. He worked with saxophonists Marion Brown and Oliver Lake. He worked with Henry Threadgill for something like 10 years in several bands or one evolving band. He worked with Cassandra Wilson on her breakout album, Blue Light Till Dawn, and the follow-up, New Moon Daughter. He's made albums under his own name. Uh, The reason people probably know his name right now is he's the guitar player in Harriet Tubman with bassist Melvin Gibbs, who's been on this podcast before, and drummer J.T. Lewis. And now, the really interesting part from my perspective Brandon Ross has an album coming out a little later this year on Burning Ambulance Music. He's got a new group called Breath of Air, which is a trio featuring Charles Burnham on violin and Warren Benbow on drums. Something I learned in this interview, by the way, is that Brandon has done the guitar-violin thing several times with Leroy Jenkins and also with Terry Janor, a very interesting violin player who isn't nearly as well-known as she ought to be. When I was researching Brandon to come up with questions for this interview, I learned about her, and now I'm going to be diving into her catalog, and I suggest you do the same. Her last name is spelled J-E-N-O-U-R-E, 
and some of her music is on streaming services. Uh, she released a three CD set called Portal last year that's fantastic. Anyway, Breath of Air has a self-titled debut, most of which was recorded live in February 2020, right before the pandemic started and live music went away. And like I said, it'll be out a little bit later this year. In the meantime, enjoy this conversation between me and Brandon Ross. We talk about his work with Henry Threadgill, about his work with Cassandra Wilson, about Archie Shep and Oliver Lake and Marion Brown, about Harriet Tubman, about the sort of no-wave punk funk jazz scene of the late 70s and early 80s that included Ornette Coleman's Primetime and Ronald Shannon Jackson's Decoding Society and Defunct and all the other guitarists that came out of that scene, including Michael Gregory Jackson and Kelvin Bell and John Paul Borelli and James Blood Ulmer and Vernon Reed. We talk about Brandon's particular approach to the guitar and to sound. There's a lot to learn and a lot to think about in the hour or so of conversation you're about to hear, so I hope you enjoy listening to it. dive right in if uh great you know if you're ready so you grew up in new jersey i understand i i did yes and you're you're old enough to have been going to concerts during the high fusion era so like did you see those bands like miles's band mahavishnu weather report return to forever mwandishi did you get to see any of those acts when they were around actually no, because I actually I left New Jersey to go to uh, boarding school, private school, but did see. I remember seeing the Mahavishnu Orchestra up at Vassar College um, when I was because I was going to uh, Quaker boarding school in Poughkeepsie, not not far from Vassar, and I do have this memory of seeing that there and just being like you know jaw dropped. by that whole thing and then also um, then later on I I went to Boston from there for about a year and I remember catching uh, Herbie at um, at the jazz workshop Um, but I don't it might have been the headhunters thing Mm -hmm. it must have been I'm pretty sure because I have this memory of Mike Clark playing drums Mm. But then, other otherwise, all that stuff, the rest of that stuff was through recordings, and um, I was at Berkeley for a year, and I I remember just everybody was, you know, all the guitarists and bass players and drummers were just, you know, that was the thing everybody was dealing with, 
and um, I I wasn't really. <laughs> I mean, I really I really liked it and listened to it, but it was just so. It just seemed so. Uh, I guess that was the period. That was the year that I. Uh, there was a guy at school, cool dude named who played bass named Jack. I wish I could remember Jack's last name. But I think it was Jack turned me on to uh, Facing You, Keith Jarrett, uh-huh. when that came out. And then, which led me to his groups. And then right bef- before, so I had this sort of thing that happened between uh, hearing Ornette's Skies of America and then hearing Facing You. There's quite a distance between these things. And then following Keith Jarrett's stuff with the quartet, and then making connections between Ornette and Charlie Hayden and Dewey Redman, into what you know what I got into, and of course I listened to all of that music, Return to Forever and Miles Vishnu Orchestra. Um, but then when My Goals Beyond came out, I was more interested in that, you know, just th- that that area because. Otherwise, it was just it was just too it was just too it was just too much, mm-hmm. you know. Like the like the orchestra, Mavisnu Orchestra was just kind of like, okay, so that's handled. <laughs> what <laughs> what what is there to do? You know, what's what's uh, what else is going on? You know, what else is happening? Yeah. And my older brother, to my older brother, who's bassist, uh, Kevin Ross, totally. I bailed out from Boston. I had a really not a great year there and went to live in Amherst with my brother who was at uh, University Without Walls at UMass Amherst. And so from him, and he had been out in California before that doing all kinds of stuff. And so from him, um, I got turned on to this whole other area of, of stuff. And of course in that, so, like, the fusion thing was, you know, it was still extant, stuff was happening, but I, I got kind of veered toward this other kind of thing. And it's hard to describe what that would be. Mm. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, I mean, I, I guess the only one that I really saw with all of its, you know, spectacular glory would have been Mahavishnu Orchestra, which, you know, I just remember seeing, you know, John and and Jerry Goodman and um, you know Jan Hammer too. It just was like like this was you know it was just amazing. It's almost like the first time I heard Sun Ra, <laughs> but just very very different. I remember being scared shitless, man. The first time I went to see Sun Ra, which was in Boston, and I went to this place, and it was not far from uh, New England Conservatory, I think, down in that neighborhood and back sort of back bay going that way and um, it was this big hall and I remember being in there and like thinking wow this is really wild this is cool and then when they when Sumra got off the stage and they started moving through the audience I remember I got really nervous because I think it might have been might have been June uh, I forget June's last name Tyson who was the with singer yeah. Tyson yeah exactly it might have been June but I didn't know who, who she was then and I was just really kind of wide-eyed and checking. They came through the audience talking about, you know, it's after the end of the world. 
don't you know that yet? And doing the whole thing with costumes and singing stuff. And I was like nervous. <laughs> I, was like, <laughs> I, I was kind of frightened, um, but fascinated at the same time. Um, so those were two musical high points in that era, but also very different, you know? Yeah, yeah. Now, the first recording credit that I was able to find for you was with R.T. Shep on There's a Trumpet in My Soul. How did you get that gig, and what do you remember about it now? Uh, well, I was, as I said, I had bailed out of Boston because it was just not the right fit for me. And um, bailed out of Berkeley. It just wasn't where I needed to be at that time. <clears throat> and... Um, went over to Amherst where my brother was living and uh, got a job working as a receptionist at uh, UMass in the continuing education division. So I was doing that, you know, I had a day gig and then the rest of, you know, I'd come home at night and practice and listen to records and trying to figure out what would be next mm -hmm. and uh, in terms of another school or what I was going to do or take some time off. And Meanwhile, Max was up there, Max Roach, and Archie was there, and I remember Stanley Cowell was probably at, at Amherst College in and out, and at Hampshire College, um, Vishnu Wood was up there, the bassist, and his, his wife, Elise Wood, played flute. And since there were five colleges in the area, there were a lot of, you know, a lot of situations where you were open or you could just kind of audit whether you were enrolled in school or not. And um, Archie had a workshop ensemble that he was doing, and he was—it was very much open door with him. It was, you know, so I kind of went down there one time. I had <clears throat> this acoustic guitar, and an ovation acoustic guitar, in fact, and uh, went to the workshop. I remember I had this Barkus Berry pickup, which was the early technology for amplifying acoustic instruments, and um, I plugged into this amp and near the drummers. Somebody was walking by and tripped over the cable to my guitar pickup and rendered it <laughs> useless before I could really, you know, before the band could really start playing. And so I, it was like, it was nothing I could do and I couldn't be heard. So I, I started to get up to go and Archie came over. He said, oh, he said, hey, man, aren't you going to stay? And I said, well, they just, uh, you know, I just had this accident. It's like, I, I can't hear myself and I can't be amplified. So you know, I'll, I'll I'll try to come back another time, and I I left. Well, I guess he heard enough of me when I was warming up and doing that. But I got a call. I remember sometime later, uh, it'd been April first, so it had been April Fool's Day, and I hadn't been into work that day. And I came in the next day, and there was a note on my desk at work that said, uh, uh, "Archie Shep called," and so I'm thinking. Okay, somebody's doing an April Fool number with me, <laughs> you know. And uh, but I had the number, so I was like, "All right, I, I guess I'll call." <laughs> so I got home at the end of the day, and I I, I uh, called up, and uh, the number belonged to Charles Majid Greenley, who was a trombonist and arranger, and was working with Archie at that time. And he said. Uh, I said, hi, I'm calling for Archie. He says, who's this? I said, well, this is Brandon Ross. I got a note. He goes, oh, the guitar player? I said, yeah. He says, oh, yeah, yeah, Archie wants to talk to you. I'll give him a call. Here's, I said, well, can I call him at this time? I think it might have been like almost 10. He said, yeah, this is business. What he does, call him up. 
So I called, and uh, Archie got on the phone, and uh, I, I said, uh, is, is this Archie or something? They had to go get him. He said, yeah. he says, hello. And I said, uh, hi, Archie. This is Brandon Ross. He goes, oh, yeah, Brandon. He said, yeah, man, you got a wonderful sound. He said, listen, I wonder if you're free to, to do a record with me on such and such a date. <laughs> and in my head, it. I'm thinking, uh, uh, yeah, but I'm thinking like, am I free? I'm like, uh, yeah, uh, I I think I can make it. <laughs> and so he said, beautiful man. He said, that's great. I, I, he goes, yeah, man, you got a great sound. I, I, I'm looking forward. So, Majid um, will get back to you with details. And I said, okay, thanks. So that was that. And I was still in my teens, man. And I was like, wow, you know. So we had a rehearsal. And uh, up in Amherst, and then we drove down to New York. And I told this story not long ago, but so I get to the session, uh, <clears throat> and I'm in the room, and I'm looking around and seeing these people. And I, so I take out my guitar, and I'm starting to tune up. And um, I, as I'm looking down at, to do something, that I see this hand comes extending itself in my range of my face, like to shake a hand. And I look up. And I take this hand and I look and this guy says, hey man, Jimmy, like that. And I said, oh hey, I'm Brandon. And I'm shaking the hand with Jimmy Garrison. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> Who was just as warm and welcoming as could be. And uh, I shared that story with Matt not long ago. And... Um, then I look around the room and later, and then I find out, you know, there's Charlie Persip is there on the drums and Ray Draper's playing tuba and Walter Davis Jr.'s on piano and, um, gosh, all these people in the room and Archie and, and, and there I am <laughs> with my little ovation acoustic guitar, but uh, definitely welcomed in the room and, you know, those cats were very encouraging and I think Archie paid me like, you know, $100 or something at the time, maybe maybe a couple hundred. I, it, you know, it was really more like I probably should have paid to be in the room. But um, it was a great experience. Yeah. And that's how that came yeah. about. Yeah. You also worked with Marion Brown and Oliver Lake quite early. Um, specifically, I saw this album that I'm very curious about by a group called Zenzile featuring Marion Brown. And I'm like wondering oh, yeah, yeah. what the deal, you know, like what what did you take away from those experiences? Like what were you know what were you able to learn from him and from Oliver? Well, so Marion's thing was a little after that period of time with Archie, and he had come up to the area, um, and um, I'm trying to put this together. But I met him because he came by a house where I was rehearsing with the drummer Steve McRaven and the bassist Joe Fonda and a keyboardist named Roger Friedman. And um, I had been uh, playing with those guys. They had also been in Boston at the time and then wound up in that area. And so I started, you know, rehearsing with them, practicing, hanging out there. Marion came by the house, saw us, and heard Steve and I and invited us to play in his group that he was putting together. And, um, you know, he kind of plugged into who was doing what up there, all the, the young musicians. And so uh, my brother, who's playing bass on that, and Terry Janor, who's playing violin and vocals. Uh, I used to play a lot with Terry and my brother, of course, and 
and Steve, and he put together this project that he had a, a contract to fulfill with a Japanese label, and he decided that he would serve more as producing this record, and, you know, with a guest appearance on it, I guess. And that's how that happened. Ah, okay. And so, but we started, uh, Marion put a band together, and we were playing in it, uh, the Steve and Terry and Kevin and I, actually, and doing gigs around New England, and then Marion got a tour to go to Europe, I guess in the winter of... Uh, 77 <clears throat> and asked Steve and I to go along and then pulled in the bassist Jack Gregg who was already living in Europe and uh, we went on on tour my first time touring in Europe mm -hmm. um, for five five weeks and it was it was all the things that usually happen that you don't want to have happen on a tour it wasn't a nightmare but it was just filled with all those things like really crazy long train rides and um at one point i was going to meet marion somewhere because i had you know met this girl and stayed over an extra night in town to join him the next day and my train almost got separated from the train that was going where i was going and i would have wound up in a totally different country all that <laughs> kind of stuff yeah um, and uh you know the excitement of being in all these different places and and, and playing, and then having a band leader curse you out for stuff, and uh, <laughs> you know the music being challenging, and and then and, uh, <laughs> and surviving it all. <laughs> right, right. Um, so that was the thing with Marion, and then um, through my friendship with uh, Michael Gregory Jackson, the guitarist, uh, who had been working with Oliver in in New York and um, really early on in the, the law scene at that time in the late 70s, <clears throat> I had known about Oliver. And when I came down to New York in, I guess, the fall of 81, late fall, uh, I was, took this workshop with Leroy Jenkins that he was doing. And um, Leroy and Oliver were touring doing duets and Oliver had his band jump up, and uh, one of his guitarists had left the band. He was looking for somebody to replace it, and Leroy recommended me to Oliver. So I went to audition over at Oliver's place and did that, but also had the connection of Michael through the guys in the band, through Jerome Harris, who was in the band, and Firon Aklauf was playing drums. Mm -hmm. And uh, so they asked me to join that band, and uh, that's how I got connected with Oliver which was great, so that would be the beginning of 82. Mm. And, uh, yeah, and Oliver, I mean, the, the thing with Jump Up was really great because it was in the, the period in New York when you had, like, the Decoding Society and Prime Time, or that's Prime Time, was sort of leading the charge of that whole thing, and Oliver Lake's Jump Up, and uh, just this, you know, this kind of... Um, I, I mean, I, I, hard to call it something, but like, you, if you go like, you know, free jazz fusion, maybe that would represent that. Yeah, I, I wanted to. I wanted to ask you about that because you, you were in, you had that New Life Trio record around then, seventy nine, eighty, and this was it was kind of a transition era of like sort of fusion into loft jazz into like no wave punk funk jazz, you know. 
And it really was kind of an open door for a group of black guitarists, including yourself, and you mentioned Michael Gregory Jackson, and then Ulmer, and Sonny Chirac, who'd been around since the 60s. And I mean, you know, Pete Cozy seemed to be off the scene, but he was kind of a predecessor and an outlier sort of, you know, at the same time. So like... You know, yeah. And Vernon like, with Decoding Society. That's you know, right. And, Vernon was coming up too. Yeah, yeah. So like yeah. that was, you know, there was all this like little wave of of guitarists, you know, and uh, mm-hmm. uh, who oh, who was the other one? Jean Paul Borelli is the Jean other Paul one. Jean Paul Borelli. Yeah. yeah. So like Jean Paul. Talk to me about that era and how you see that kind of blurring of sounds that was going on back then. Well, you know, it's really interesting because when I, it's kind of hard for me to describe, but when I got to New York um, and I waited to come down until I could really be sure of myself and not so much necessarily musically, but, but somewhat that, but sure of myself in terms of being able to, you know, just kind of handle what, all, all the stuff that New York throws at you. (laughs) And, um. Yeah, you know, and so there was that cusp, like I, when I was up in Massachusetts, moving up there, and I was listening to all the music down here, you know, the loft jazz stuff, and listening to Oliver's Quartet, and listening to um, Julius Hemphill, and um, Human Arts Ensemble, Bobo Shaw, and listening to David Murray's groups with Butch Morris and David, and all those guys, and then and um, Steve who came up, Steve Reed, who had come up, which is how I met him, through David Wortman, and we did that record. Um, and, you know, I'm just starting to check it out and see what was going on. And so the the loft jazz thing was really big uh, influence, too. Another person, Burn Nix, who mm. I always loved Burn. And um, uh, I guess there was, you know, I, I guess a lot of us had obviously been influenced by the fusion thing but then there was this other kind of what would i say i i guess i would have to say that in terms of direction for guitar an alternative direction for guitar for me the inspiration would be michael michael gregory because i met michael um back in boston actually in passing on, on the street at first, and then learned that he was up there to visit Steve McRaven because they were both from New Haven, and and Steve and he were playing. And I heard Michael playing in this room with Steve. He was playing this Martin acoustic guitar he had plugged in and playing with Steve, and it was just kind of, it was just very interesting as well as being really sort of um, hyper kinetic, mm-hmm. is a good way to put it. But then later, you know, it, after he had connected with. Oliver and um, some of the guys from ACM, and he would do these solo concerts in a way that I had never imagined them to be done, where he was, you know, playing guitar, but it wasn't like, okay, and my next tune is, you know, blah, 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 blah and, and trying to function that way. It was more like a, a, a presentation of um, ideas, concepts, directions, and ways of opening up this territory of what the music was about, what could be included in the music. And it was the first person I heard using a volume pedal. Um, 
and which was re and <laughs> those records with him in Oliver Lake's quartet when he's playing Fred Hopkins and Ferone and Oliver, and you know it sounded like he, Michael was playing guitar backward, like playing in reverse without you know before all the technology that makes that so easy. Mm -hmm. Now, um, so I, I would have to say that that opened up a whole other kind of thing and then the musicians that were associated with that where you have you know the art ensemble and, and lester bowie and um like philip wilson and um i'm just thinking about records that came through and this great record with leroy and rashid ali swift are the winds of life which was the, the one of the things that really made me come down to new york was because i really wanted to meet leroy and you know possibly play with him which did happen and ended up happening so it was kind of another kind of uh, a, a fusion thing. And then when I got to, to New York and met some of the guys in Decoding Society, I met Melvin, also met him on the street, <laughs> just walking down the street. Didn't know who he was or what he did. And then we both found out we were playing in these bands. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, and then checking out what they're doing and, and then prime time. I mean, early on in New York, I... Um, met Ornette and through one of the drummers in one of his editions of Prime Time and went over to Ornette's place downtown at the school and uh, hung out there a little bit and rehearsed on a project uh, that I had with uh, Terry Janor on violin and Kamal Sabir on drums, just a trio. So it's kind of a an early imprint of the current Breath of Air trio. Yeah. And of yeah. course, you know, of course, Blood. And, and his record, which was really great, and and had irritated when it first came out, Tales of Captain Black, that irritated uh, many a girlfriend over the years, <laughs> <laughs> which especially on road trips. <laughs> but um, uh, and we joke about that. Melvin and I laugh about that kind of stuff. But so there's that fusion, and I can't. I mean, you know, it's really hard for me to say. Um, what that would be, but I've never considered, you know, I've never considered myself a fusion guitarist in the in the sort of Catholic sense of the term. Right. Um, I've just considered myself um, myself, and somehow um, incorporating the parts of what has influenced me yeah. in my life as an artist or you know in the process of being an artist incorporating the things that have influenced me in my life into a musical sound and form which includes um you know all of the contemporary ways that and by contemporary meaning going from like from the 60s forward that guitar um has been showcased <clears throat> and featured Mm -hmm. And I've often told people if it, if it wasn't, I mean, I didn't listen to a lot of funk and stuff like that growing up because the guitar wasn't featured in a way that it was in other musics. There wasn't enough of it for me. You know, it was more, um, it was more used and and designated a rhythm instrument and a groove instrument, which yeah. was fine. But my I was drawn to something. That was more lyrical and more about more ideational, and um, so that kind of uh, fusion, if you will, was 
what was talking to me. And um, what was I going to say? There was something just passed through my mind. Maybe it'll come back. But the the period then of coming to New York and along with the ideas of people like, you know, Wadada, Leo Smith, and and then la- even much later connecting with Henry or the period that I worked with, with Leroy Jenkins, which was a, a strong period of influence for me. Um, because it led to all of these other musicians. You know, yeah. It led to, to all kinds of people who were around and who were active mentors, um, which was a great thing. And I don't see that situation now out there. It's not, not quite the same. Mm-hmm. I mean, the thing is now I guess I'm supposed to be a mentor. But <laughs> back then there was... You know, it, what was on the scene, what was going on, what was playing was happening from people who had been, you know, a generation of musicians who had maybe been in Vietnam and, and survived or had avoided the draft. And there's a lot of political awareness and, and social awareness. And again, about uh, experimentalism in the music. I mean, those are the people I was drawn to. And you could meet these people and kind of be pulled into their world in a positive way. You know, this this, this approach to music, you know, this, the, the new music. And again, extensions from Ornette and the fire music period, Archie Shep, thinking about that, um, Max Roach. Like, all those people were still around. Until I remember playing with, with Oliver somewhere. I might have been someplace on... It was someplace on Bleecker Street. I forget the name of this club. And, you know, Max Roach was there. Max would walk in and check out, see what was going on. And he'd be playing around in town. Or, you know, Arthur Blythe was, was doing stuff. And it reminds me that Calvin Bell was, was around, too, as a guitar player who was uh, doing a different kind of thing. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, there was and before that, Defunct, which preceded my arrival in New York, but certainly... Um, found out about those guys and all of that. Um, mm-hmm. So I think, you know, I think it's just this <clears throat> a generational flux, a generational view that c- combined with, you know, the jazz uh, so-called avant-garde. And I don't mean that stylistically. I just mean of the era, of the period. And, um, you know, guys who would who could be... You know, like the art ensemble and the whole thing of ACM, great black music, ancient to the future. So that gives you a whole range of of musics and ideas to connect with, and all of these things are valid. Yeah. yeah. So if if I think about fusion in that sense, that has a lot of meaning for me. But as a stylistic approach, which most people commonly reference it to, and a sound and and you know musical behaviors um it's okay i mean i was listening the other day to um a compilation of return to forever chick korea and one of the early things and i was like okay this is you know it wasn't really speaking to me it didn't really seem to hold up in a certain way and then at the same time i was out at sf jazz in march to do a thing and um got to meet stanley clark for the first time and he was being honored as an NEA jazz master and played some things with a group that he's working with. I think they were at the Blue Note last week. And it was just fabulous. It was just great. And it, it felt really fresh, which was a good thing 
and yet also a kind of a weird thing for me that that would feel as fresh as it does. Um, and this is not a statement about Stanley's music, but it's a statement about the way the the music business and the music culture community has shifted and changed um, since the late 70s, early 80s till now. Yeah, yeah. Redgill, and I wanted to ask you about that because you worked with him for about a decade in a couple of different bands and or like mm-hmm. one evolving band, you know, or whatever. But mm-hmm. I don't know much about Threadgill's compositional concept because he doesn't really talk much to journalists about the music and how it works. Like he kind of plays it close to the vest with stuff like that. But mm-hmm. I've listened to the albums that you're on, and so I would, I'm wondering, and I'm, I've listened to a bunch of others too, obviously, but like I'm wondering if you could talk about what you saw as the role of the guitar in Very, Very Circus. Okay, so first of all, I think maybe one of the things that you know people need to understand about Henry is that... Um, and this is my opinion, of course. First and foremost, he's a, a composer. <clears throat> and um, as a composer, he's also an orchestrator. And, it's, and he's all, he, I mean, he also happens to be a really great and economical and incisive improviser, too. So when I joined Very, Very Circus, uh, one of the first things he said to Masuja, the other guitarist, and myself... Mm-hmm was that he didn't need a double, like 12 strings. you got 12 strings going on. And here he, here he had a band with two tubas, saxophone and trombone, drums, and two electric guitars. And as I said, he's a composer and is very thoughtful and specific about his orchestration. And so he told us, he said, look, I don't want you guys doubling up on this because it'll it will cloud the information, be too much information. So if you play things, you're going to play chords or things that off, besides what's written, voice them open, if they're open. Uh, If you're voicing a chord, voice it open and use only two or three notes maximum at a time. So in order to do that on guitar, you've got to skip strings. And... Uh, an ordinary chord that you might strum. Uh, you, you can't do that. <laughs> you, you can't do that unless you get involved in all kinds of muting and, and silly stuff. So for me, it it changed my right hand technique. And coincidentally or fortunately, I have for many years practiced you know classical guitar right hand mm-hmm. basic technique things. 
um, as a regular part of my practice thing. And because um, I've always appreciated classical guitar, or I should say 18th century European guitar approaches. And uh, I, so it was like, okay. And then dealing with this music where it's a whole other kind of organization and discussion about what's called for and, and just, you know, Henry's vision of the music. So that thing really was like a watershed thing for me, that whole, the early period for sure. Uh, and it opened up a whole other other world and way of musical thinking for me. Um, mm-hmm. Where you are thinking about, you are thinking about information, amounts of musical information, or what what's the impact of a particular musical choice in terms of information in the context. So I I mean, you know, with with Henry's music for me, it just took me into this great place of uh, of playing the guitar that really um helped me I should say or resulted in me having a very different kind of um, guitar sensibility. Mm. It's interesting because superficially as a listener, there are some sort of auditory similarities between, you know, the, some, of the, some of the Henry records that you're on, like, for example, uh, Too Much Sugar for a Dime, you know. Mm-hmm. There are mm-hmm. superficial similarities to harmonic stuff, but they're completely different concepts because, as you say, Threadgill stuff is highly composed, whereas Ornette's stuff is much more open forms. You know, like he'll give you a melodic idea and then say, you know, everybody figure out what this melody does to or for you and we'll see where we end up, kind of, you know. Okay, so... I would say maybe the one of another key feature with him would be form, and and it's it's evolved as he's moved through different bands and periods of the music. Mm-hmm. But um, form and his use and experimentation um, with form was a big one. And you know he used to say, "Look, I remember the first band. So very very circus was the first band I was in, and he." Um, I remember him saying to the guys one day, to, every, to all of us, he said, look, people are going to want your gig. You know, when they start hearing this band, they're going to come up and want your gig. He said, but, you know, they, they're not going to be able to understand what's happening if they come up and look at the music because it's not all on the page. But it has to do with how that information on the page was grouped and how it evolves as, as people start playing it. Mm-hmm. So formulaically speaking in terms of format stuff you know on Henry's some of the scores we used to do back then in Very Very Circus we might get to a section of the score and in a in a similar sense of the term uh, of lifting something out of a score which is what Butch Morris often talked about with conduction like you can get to like a two bar phrase that will suddenly then play retrograde and and repeat that like two or three times before moving on. Mm. 
and then when you go to create on the music after you've played the written material you now you're going through the form to create independently a, a, a soloist then that form may move at half the speed as the written material or twice the speed so something is now extended or elongated and so the sense of time and where things are happening um, is very mutable and it's often hard, difficult for some people to, you know, grasp what's going on. And but they're they're aware that something has gone on. But it sounds, it can seem, not amorphous is not the right term. It can seem highly open and highly improvised. And in lots of ways, uh, it's open to interpretation in that way by a player. But it, the structure and the form is highly specific. Harmelodics, from what I understand about it and have gleaned from it, just spending a little time with Ornette and the musicians, some of the musicians who work with him, is, um, I mean, Ornette would always talk about, when I heard him talk, he would talk about playing the idea and um, playing an idea and not your instrument, mm. but really fo following an idea being able to follow an idea and to to let an idea move. And in terms of harmelodics, there was, there's a certain uh, frame that gives you the harmelodic theory, the foundation of, of the harmelodic theory about how you can move and where you can move. So it's actually, again, quite specific, but very open to who's executing. Now, you know, a lot of, peop a lot of people imitate what they think harmelodics is and uh, on the low end of the spectrum it's like oh yeah it's just free after the head you know mm -hmm. but on on the other end the higher end of, of the spectrum people who work with them and know it it's uh, very much not that I mean I was talking to Greg Cohen about it maybe last year and uh, Greg played on the uh, the uh, record that he got the poster for. I think it's Sound Grammar. <clears throat> and he was just sharing with me something that he did with Ornette that he said, you know, that Ornette always appreciated. But And this gets into some of Henry's music too, but it's this, it's basically like an open, um, if this makes any sense, an open tonality, but it moves in, in specific associations. So I would say like Henry's music, where he's at now in terms of what he's using is very um, it's open centered in terms of, of key because it's now based on a different order it's based on a numeric system of ordering uh, that's related to choices in terms of pitch and harmony and um, it's not functioning in this diatonic harmonic sense right? as, as harmonics did not either even though you can have some things that you know, felt that way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think that's probably the, you know, that similarity. R right, right. Now I have to ask you about this because I didn't, I, and it's funny because I listened to this other side of your music that we've been discussing, you know, but and I didn't even remember this until I was like researching this, you know, these questions, but you were not only the guitarist on Cassandra Wilson's Blue Light Till Dawn and New Moon Daughter albums, but you also did a lot of the arranging for that. 
So kind yeah. of kind of talk to me about the history of that project and how it came together because those were those albums were really well received and really pretty successful commercially not not just by jazz standards but like commercially successful so you know did that yeah. project represent like a major windfall for you and like tell me about you know the whole story of it well <laughs> i wish it had but <laughs> nobody knows that these things are going to happen ever um it it was uh I mean, it was a major windfall for Cassandra and um, uh, her producer. Um, so the way that happened uh, was that uh, Craig Street, who produced those records, and and myself, um, we used to hang a lot, spend a lot of time talking about music and stuff, and you know, a bunch of people who who would do that in the community, and Greg Tate was among them, and. Craig lived uptown in the same building as Cassandra in that period of time, and he would all, he was also doing construction part-time and um, had a couple of big projects, things that he had done with Alan Douglas, um, you know, Douglas Records, and mm-hmm. dealing with some of the Hendrix material. And he produced this project called Triad with Jerry Allen and uh, Batson Brothers, Mark and Scott Batson, playing three acoustic pianos and doing the music of Jimi Hendrix, and in conjunction with a film as well. And some elements of it didn't, it, there were production issues and the project didn't happen, and so, you know, it, it was, it was, a, it was unfortunately a fiasco. But later on, um, Craig was doing construction, and he happened, some, there was an injury on the site, he hurt his foot, so he wasn't working for a while, he was waiting for his foot to heal, and he was going up the elevator in his building and ran into Cassandra in the elevator, and uh, they, you know, just started chatting as they knew each other in passing, and uh, he said, so what are you up to, what's going on? She said, well, I'm, I'm, yeah, I got signed for Blue Note, and I'm about to do my first record for them, and he goes, oh yeah, what are you, what are you going to do for that? She said, well, I want to do music that, that was meaningful, like, you know, when you're a kid, like coming of age, you know, like blue light in the basement, slow dances, and all that kind of intrigue. He said, "Yeah, that's that's interesting. What music are you gonna do?" And she started mentioning some people. I think he mentioned she mentioned maybe the stylistics or something else. And Craig, being Craig, who's a, a, a great musical person, and um, uh, said, "Do you ever listen to um, Van Morrison?" and Cassandra starts spontaneously singing Tupelo Honey, the chorus from Tupelo Honey. And he said, uh, she goes, oh, yeah, Van Morrison, you know, I used to play guitar when I was back in Mississippi when I was, you know, college days and coffeehouse stuff and do these songs. And and Joni Mitchell, he goes, oh, yeah, Joni Mitchell. He goes, and she said, yeah, you know, and he mentioned a couple of other people. And he said, I mean, I think it would be really interesting if you did that music and she was kind of like oh are you kidding man the jazz police would be on me in two <laughs> seconds flat and he said well no you know if if i mean coming out of you they wouldn't necessarily sound like you know the way they we know of them and so he was thinking about because we had talked a lot about all kinds of you know like a folk american folk music black American folk music and string music in particular because Craig is also a guitarist. So he he said, 
you know, you ought to think about it. And I guess I don't know what further happened, but I remember he called me later, and we used to meet downtown a lot in Manhattan and drink coffee and, you know, just be on the scene, check stuff out. And he goes, hey, man, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm writing this composition I was commissioned to write for Bang on a Can All-Stars from the ASCAP Foundation, and then I'm going on tour with Henry. He said, well, I need you to do something. I said, well, what's that? He goes, uh, I was talking to Cassandra, and I need you to do, like, can you do an arrangement of a Tupelo Honey for her? Like, do an arrangement. You know, you can do, like, a demo thing, and and Hellhound on my trail, or come on in my kitchen. Robert Johnson. <laughs> I said, Craig, when do you need this? He goes, like, I don't know, like, later this week, can you do it? I was like, man, I got to finish this thing. And, I, and then I'm going on tour. He goes, no, nah, man, come on. You should you got, you got, should do it. You know, do it. it. It'll be good for you if, you if this works. You should do this. I said, okay, all right. So I did that. And, you know, I grew up with that music. And uh, so I went up and played it for Cassandra at her house, just brought my acoustic guitar and did Tupelo Honey for her. And she loved it. And... Uh, just really loved it. And, you know, I didn't know. I, we used to see each other around on the road here and there and in town, just, you know, kind of say, hey, how you doing, just like that. But I didn't know that she had played guitar or a- anything like that. So then Craig asked me to arrange a couple more things, and she had um, a sketch of an idea for You Don't Know What Love Is, <clears throat> um, a kind of tuning that she had developed, and you know, just sort of the basic key area and kind of shape that she was thinking about. You know, it was really, really rough. But so I took this cassette and, you know, developed the arrangement from that. And we went to record this stuff for Blue Note, right, to do a demo of it. Because she said, look, to Bruce Lundvall, at the time I've got this producer I want to work with and doing different things. And da, da, da. so they said, okay. So we go and record. <laughs> you know, I get some people together. I uh, called Lance Carter, the drummer who we had been working with, with Sonny Chirac, mm-hmm. and also happened to be my, my cousin, actually, my first cousin, and Charlie Burnham, and Rylan called Charlie, and uh, I guess Lonnie Plaxico was there already. He had been on that. So we go in the studio, and I had this arrangement of uh, You Don't Know What Love Is that was like a, a, a kind of a 12-8 version, which came out in Europe and Japan, not here. Uh, so we were working on that, and of course it's the era of two-inch tape, so we're waiting to change reels because we had gone through some stuff. And while we were doing that, I started playing the version obligato, just slowly, and Cassandra started singing, and Craig, being the very smart person that he is, informed the engineer to record, and so we that's how we got the version of You Don't Know What Love Is that came out on the record, and that was the thing that Bruce Lundvall heard that sealed the deal for Cassandra in that direction of the project. He was like, this is fantastic. This is what we have to do. And he said, who is Craig Street and how come I don't know about him? And la da 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 So, and then we did the record and the rest is history. So that involved me learning to do the stylistics version that we did, which um, conceptually um, Craig and I were both hearing as like, uh, you know, almost like a not like not flamenco, but that that type of setting, like where you, mm-hmm. where you have these guitars 
in the, and percussion. I think Vinks was playing percussion on that, and uh, and then Tupelo Honey. We got that version down, and so we just did that. And the thing for me was I was just doing what I would do. It, it was no there was no calculation about oh this is going to be a hit, you know. Right. Just, this was this was the music that was meaningful to Cassandra and um, to both Craig and I, and um, so we went in and did that and. Nobody knew that she was going to sell, you know, half a million copies of that record. Um, yeah, like in the first, you know, in the first six months or something like that. I mean, it was just kind of crazy. It just hit. And it actually ended up changing the direction, on, I think, for the label after that. Mm -hmm. um, it's very funny. I read recently a quote from Nora Jones where she was talking about how, you know, when her record took off, you know, 20 years mm -hmm. ago, she like panicked and basically called up Blue Note and asked them to please stop promoting the record. You know, yes, just she please did. let you know, leave me alone. Let me, you know, this is too much. I can't deal. You know. <laughs> yeah, I remember. I remember reading that myself, and uh, I remember when Nora like first was passing through New York, coming up from New Orleans. I guess she was at Tonic one time doing something, and I uh, with this group that was. You know, they weren't quite gelling, but I remember going up to her afterwards and just saying, yeah, that was really great. You sound great. And she remembered that uh, sometime later, and she saw me somewhere and mentioned that to me. But it, um, that, yeah, the thing about that record that I've told people is, is I think the beauty of it was, again, it was, you know, at least on, not on my part, calculated, but it was more like saying, you know, like Craig saying to Cassandra and and encouraging her and convincing her by bringing me in, and you know, we found a, a great musical chemistry. That it was just, I tell people, I just did absolutely what I would have wanted to do musically. That mm -hmm. uh, you know, and I had a producer who was like, yeah, okay, and you know my best musical experiences with and they're rare um have been that kind of situation um it's uh even the even the uh, version of on that record on the blue light till dawn record the version of uh, come on in my kitchen was tricky and it almost got you know cuz it's you know it's like <laughs> and i've talked about this with Threadgill uh, you know, musicians, especially jazz musicians, are some of the most conservative people on the planet. I mean, <laughs> it's 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 ironic, but they can be some of the most. Uh, uh, I'm not finding the right word, Phil, but it's it's akin to conservatism and sort of this parochialism. Maybe is is kind of like that, and they can be so invested in the lore, L-O-R-E, and the, the you know, the, the weight of however they relate to the word tradition or not, mm -hmm. that they can't uh, move forward. It's like, you know, like Cassandra saying at first when she did that guy, you know, the jazz police are going to come and get me. They'll, they'll knock down my door. And, yeah, there is that out there. And it's it's what I can't use. <laughs> right, right you know it's what i can't use I've, and so you know we managed to get through we managed to get through 
because of Craig. You know, mm-hmm. Craig was, you know, I mean, he had already taken a shot and got knocked down off it, but it was like, okay, this is, you know, this will work. Yeah. And it did. Yeah. You know, it did. And But nobody could foresee that, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. There are very few producers who are able to kind of push in that way, you know, and it sounds like he's one of them and like Hal Wilner was another, you know, and Laswell is one to a degree. People yeah, who will... Kip Hanrahan. Kip Hanrahan. Kip Hanrahan. Yeah, like people who will take, you know, someone who's known for a thing and throw them in the deep end and say, okay, I want you to do this instead, you know, or I want you to do the, your thing in this totally unexpected context, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're talking about, basically we're talking about creativity, and that's the thing. It's like, and I understand people spend a lot of time, uh, I among them, whoever we are, invested in developing something or committing to something or, or learning a way of doing things or a repertoire or all of that. And yet, that's all well and good, but creativity often demands something else. Yeah, yeah. So, and I, you know, that that's somebody. I was talking to Henry the other day at Threadgill, and he something he or something I read that we were talking about something, and someone said, "You are you uh, uh, you interested in X Y Z or something?" He said, "I'm interested in creativity." You know that. It's and that that says it that says it all to me. And I think to be creative means uh, stepping outside of your own parameters. Mm-hmm. If such a thing is is possible, you know. relates to both Tubman and Breath of Air because Mm -hmm. um, your guitar playing with both of them is, at least to my ear as a listener, you know, is very effects-driven and sort of abstract. Like, right from the beginning, it seems like it's been like that. Are you consciously trying to subvert the idea of the power trio or of, you know, quote, lead guitar? And also, are you a big pedal guy? Because it seems like you do a lot of work when I've seen you live to make your guitar sound less like a guitar and more like a storm cloud or like colors, you know, or something. So kind of tell me a little bit about your relationship to gear and how it impacts your sound. Well, so for me, and you probably also know that I have a deep love of acoustic instruments, acoustic guitar, acoustic string instruments. So my point of view is 
I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm. You can put me in a room with a fine, flat top steel string guitar like a Klein acoustic guitar, which I'm lucky to own, or a, a nylon string guitar or a banjo, and nice resonant room, and I'll be happy for the rest of my days. Meanwhile, if I pick up electric guitar, well, what can this thing do? <laughs> and it can do all kinds of things that an acoustic instrument can. So when I have that on, when I have an electric guitar on, I'm like, I'm working things that, that can be worked with it in that way, right? So amplified guitar is then again something else but I, I consider these at least three categories of ways to move around on the instrument. Mm. So when I'm playing in Harriet Tubman, or he, here's some insight. Like when I first came to New York, and it's like, I think, the 80, 82 or 83, and I was playing with uh, Oliver Lake, and I remember I'd, I never particularly liked distortion at that time. I didn't, you know, I was like, okay. And, I, and eventually I got a pedal <laughs> because... I just needed to cut through in in a different way. Mm -hmm. And I'll, I'll never forget, I was playing at Sounds of Brazil with Oliver, and we did this set, and I had this solo in the usual song that I had the solo in. And it happened to be the end of the set, and I used this distortion pedal to play my stuff. And I got off the stage, and one of my dear buddies, who is also in, involved in the music world, Mitch Goldman at the time, I come off and Mitch said, hey, man, he goes, wow, man, you must have been practicing. You sound really great. And I just remember thinking to myself, all I did, Mitch, was step on this pedal. And <laughs> I, I began to understand, you know, the whole thing, the semiotics of distortion and what that does in, in the, the public mind, the, the perception of that. So it's like, all right. I have one, and now people can maybe start to hear what I'm actually doing. And then that is, has evolved, and I think it effects become like... Uh, they can, they're can they very seductive, first of all, and they have the uh, unfortunate ability to sort of blur a musical personality. But I think everybody finds those things that they respond to, you know, just the way they find people in life. Uh, like, yeah, this is the one that I, I like. That's cool for me. So in Harriet Tubman right now, I know I'm in a place where I'm looking for this other sound. I'm hearing something different now than I have. And in Breath of Air, um, I just, yeah, I mean, I'm just, you know, I, I used to, I, I've never listened very much to guitarists in my life, partly. Mm -hmm. that, that's the other thing. You know, I've listened a lot to um, piano players and saxophone players, but I'm also not interested in trying to be either of those things. Yeah. Because um, the guitar doesn't do those things. It, it can. The guitar is pretty versatile. It can do a whole lot of stuff, but I think there's a, uh, an archetypal function of, of most instruments. And I remember having a discussion about this idea with, with the cellist Deidre Murray, who was talking about that. She said, you know, what's the what's the archetypal role of, of guitar when you think about it? You know, it's used as a chamber instrument for romance, that kind of, like, what is it for trumpet, you know, a, a call to 
to something, a call to war, or how, how are these things used? And you start thinking about the sonic characteristics of an instrument and, and what they do, what, what their functional role or purpose might have been. And then how to use them in that regard. You know, in a modern context with amplification, you can change all that. You can interfere with it or enhance it, uh, disguise it, you know, um, totally distort or render it irrelevant. Yeah, yeah. It's really interesting. I once had a conversation with Joe Morris where Mm -hmm. he talked about, you know, the fact that he's, you know, he, he at the, at this point in his career, he, you know, when I was talking to him, which is maybe, this is about 20 years ago, around there, mm-hmm. and he said, you know, I can step on a pedal and drown out, you know, David Ware or any saxophonist, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. he said to him, that felt like cheating. And so mm-hmm. he was much more focused on playing these extremely clean, kind of beboppy lines in a free jazz context because he mm-hmm. felt like to go that, you know, foot on the pedal route would be would be unfair. It's an unfair it was mm-hmm. an unfair advantage, you know. And mm-hmm. so he felt like he needed to communicate that much more cleanly in that context, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Yeah, I I can appreciate that and and Joe certainly did that. Um and I think I felt that way when I first came to New York, too, which is why I didn't have an overdrive pedal or a distortion pedal. Um, But I think that was, you know, for me, that was, it's again, more of a kind of, uh, not speaking for Joe, but it's more of a kind of, you know, a parochialism rather than thinking about, well, what's the context? What's the musical situation? What's what are the tolerances? What's the intention here? You know, I mean, the way that I met Stomu Takeshi, who was one of my most uh, beloved musical compatriots, he was playing electric bass guitar in a trio with Jason Huang and Michelle Kinney, the cellist. And they were both playing, you know, amplified acoustic string instruments, violin and cello. And Stomu was playing electric bass. And, you know, that would be really easy to throw off balance Mm -hmm. because, you know, the sound chamber of these, you know, bowed string instruments is a very well-known thing and it it has its properties and function. And to to be in ensemble in that situation with an electric instrument is not an easy thing to do necessarily. Stomu blended with that in this way that was just amazing. And I had not ever heard him. And I had just come back from India, where I'd been with Henry Threadgill when he was starting Make a Move. And he told me to keep my eye out for a bassist. And I heard Stomu, and after the set, I went up to him and told him how much I appreciated what he was doing. And uh, asked him uh, if he'd be interested in auditioning for a a band uh, led by Henry Threadgill. Or something, something like that. I said, I can't remember exactly. I should ask him. But he didn't know who Henry was at all at the time. So this was just like 1995, the fall of 1995. Mm. Um, and uh, I think Michelle Kinney told him, said, 
she, he asked her, and she, she said, oh, you have a chance to play with Henry? She said, by all means, go do it. <laughs> and so, you know, Stonewall came to audition with J.T. Lewis and me and, and Tony Cedrus. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, I really liked what he was doing. So, and, you know, the rest of that now is history. But um, that is something that everyone has an opportunity to figure out. But I, 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 like I said, it's like I played in a group with Myra Melford, Myra's band Be Bread, and I was playing, she asked me to play soprano guitar, which is an acoustic guitar, and amplified. But I was also playing in a band with, you know, drums. I think, it was, yeah, Matt Wilson and Stoneman was playing, um, you know, electric bass, Kong Vu on trumpet, and uh, Ben Goldberg on clarinet. And I could never uh, kind of get, and Myra's playing piano, of course, I could never get the ensemble to appreciate the dynamic level where everything could function in a way. And it might have been a poor choice in her or orchestrational sense for how to use it. It works in a recording studio, but live I was always uh, struggling. Mm. Um, and... Uh, you know, like a drummer has a certain threshold and sound chamber they want to function in to hear their stuff. Trumpet player for sure, clarinetist, piano. You know, all of these in these different instruments. So, to get that stuff to work in a live situation is very challenging. You need people to really um, be able to breathe together. You know, yeah. and uh, accommodate yeah. each other for for what those those tolerances are. And certainly that was true with with many of Henry's bands with very very circus. With tubas and electric guitars and French horn and drums and uh, other bands of his. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he uh, he has a, a way of combining frequencies that's that's very interesting, you know. And it's something that mm. I also hear uh, that I also hear Wadada doing a lot, you know, is they'll I, I pick just, that was, yeah. high and low yeah, instruments so and really, you know, figure out a yeah. way to like construct a like a hedge maze almost of sounds. You know. Yeah, I was just going to mention Wadada too in that same context. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, it's really. But I mean, you know, for me, because it, it, the the guy, the guy that I think of as well with this is, you know, when we were discussing like Joe Morris and figuring out a way to like carve out a space for yourself, is I think this is why Jimmy Lyons worked so well with Cecil Taylor for so long was because. Mm -hmm he wasn't a screaming free jazz saxophonist. He was a bebop saxophonist hovering in the middle yeah. of this storm of sound, you know, and when yeah. you, when he pierced through, it was like, Oh yeah, there, you know, he's there, you know? Yeah. It was, yeah. it was completely op op opposite of what everyone else was doing. And that was why it worked. Well, you know, that I was going to, this is one of the things again, it's like the science of sound in the music and, you know, Steve Reed was somebody like that, too. I mean, Steve had played with Fela, had uh, gone to Nigeria and hung out with Fela in his compound for a while, played with Fela and with Sun Ra and Charles Tyler. And it's like, even at, at the time that I met Steve, you know, I hadn't had a lot of professional musical experience. Uh -huh. I was, you know, practicing and working on my thing. So even with Steve, when we did that record... New Life Trio, I played mostly acoustic guitar on it. I played a couple electric guitar things. And the electric guitar is basically electric guitar. It's not, there's no 
affect stuff on it. Mm-hmm. And, um, but Steve, you know, I, I, one of the things I learned a lot about with Steve was, again, this thing about sound and sound chambers and, and how to move through things. And that's something that I remember talking about with Grégoire Marais, the um, harmonica player, who we were talking once about Dewey Redmond, because I asked him if he was hip to Dewey Redmond. And he said that he had, uh, I guess, studied with Dewey or taken a lesson or two with Dewey. And one of the things that Dewey had said to him, he said, well, Dewey said, yeah, just go play a G. And like, I forget the details of how Gregoire explained it, but he said it was basically playing a single note and being able to hold that and hear that and shape that uh, in a way until he, you know, could understood understood what that is. And, and all of this is about frequency and stuff. Like you play a, a pitch, there's, there's the pitch, what it's doing, then there's the timbre of the instrument that's executing it, and how, when you start tuning into your instrument in that way, then you start making music on this meta level, which uh, just exponentially communicates uh, beyond necessarily the composition or the you know the musical idea because now you're also playing frequencies at the same time because you understand on your particular instrument where you play this G which position is or what the timbre is how that's going to move and affect something and what's what it's going to do in a situation now you can get that from an electric guitar too you get that but it's it's more electronically based and more electronic based mm-hmm. thing um and affects also, but there's so many variables. It's like when you're on the road and you've got the amp du jour, and it might be <laughs> something totally different from the day before, and you've got effects going that you're carrying, which you're familiar with for your instrument, but they behave and interact differently with this new amplification situation. So these are the kinds of things that you know the professional experience brings forward, and you figure out how to control or learn how to minimize or navigate um, and it's a whole other part of it, and that is something that uh, I don't know. You know, I don't know if people get to that in school, in schools. But what I see <laughs> mostly these days, a lot of people in school coming out of schools doing this stuff, and they aren't getting the mystical information, the mystic dimensions of what it is to play this music or any music really. Yeah, yeah. And I think you know the people we we've, we've been talking about, and. Um, the periods of, of in the music that we've been talking about, that, that those individuals seem to be more prevalent and um, can get that to you. And I, you know, for me, it was came a lot through AACM guys like Wadada and Henry and Muhal, uh, Richard Abrams, and uh, my connection and intersection with those people. Um, you know, that just my trajectory in that trail from, you know, Archie Shep and I mean, Archie, Archie said to me at age, I guess I was age 19 at that point, and he said, I said, ran into him one day. He said, hey, Brandon, what are you doing? What's going on? I was still in Massachusetts. I said, well, Archie, I'm trying to, you know, just get better at practice. He goes, oh, man, no, man. I think he said, man, I, I think you already got it, man. You just have to define what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And he was right. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm still doing it. You know, still doing that. Um, 
but that that's the kind of thing it's like when when you begin to define what you're doing and then you can arrive at something that's yours it's it's connected of course with everyone else but i've always been a believer that if you know i'm going to a, a particular venue in in a town that it shouldn't sound the same as the last venue I was in if it's completely different people. And that's not my experience so much these days. Yeah, it's funny. I think, you know, music schools would do really well to kind of, you know, offer a course that they call like Tour 101. And what it would be would be the students show up and, you know, attempt to play a piece, but every day a different piece of their gear is broken or malfunctioning in some way, you know? <laughs> yeah. No, it is. It, <laughs> it's just true. like, okay, try and figure it out without, you know, when you're down to down to four strings or like that pedal you've been using, it doesn't work today, you know? So yeah, what are you yeah. going to do? I, I, think, <laughs> I think that's how Bill Frizzell uh, eventually let go of uh, all the effects he was using. Because, you know, he used to work with Moore, and I think he, he was flying somewhere on a tour, he was doing something, and the gear got lost. And <laughs> I mean, I I went to the, play this festival in Austria once, my first time doing that particular festival as a leader, and I had the six-piece group, and every bit of gear we had got lost. I mean, like the instruments. Oh. And we're in the mountains in Austria. It was, it was 1996, and I had tuba, cello, accordion um drum set percussionist and myself and we get stuck in new york because of weather and we in or ordinarily we would have arrived the following day in the afternoon instead we arrived a day and a half later the morning like a sunday morning in the mountains in austria where i have an afternoon concert with this group the tuba is gone, the cello is gone, the accordion is gone. Now, fortunately, it was Austria in the Alps. <laughs> and you can find, even on a Sunday, a tuba, a cello, and an accordion, which we did, but they're all somebody else's instruments. Mm-hmm. And my pedals and effects were all gone. Um, the percussionists, they were able to reconfigure stuff uh, on site, and the drum set is pretty ubiquitous, so that managed the cymbals and things. But I had no pedals, and I'm going, ah, oh, you know, what am I going to do here? And I think I managed to borrow something or find something. I had one thing. Not only that, people lost their parts, and um, fortunately I had some scores, and I also fortunately have been on the road with Henry, who his one of his big caveats was, do not pack your music in your suitcase or anything you check in, so we reconstructed things. But mm. it, it was it would it would be a classic episode in um, a course like that, or better yet, even a a, a television reality show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah.